in our events, in our exhibitions, in our panel discussions, in our conferences. We discuss the historical situation and it is so very, very relevant for today. And I myself am walking away with so many questions and thoughts. And I hope that those who see our work, be, become part of our work, that they have the same experience and that we, you know, yes, we commemorate and, but we also kind of start seeing our, our reality with more complexity. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was this month's featured guest for Glancet Culture, Rachel Stern, giving her thoughts on the legacy she is creating as director of the Fritz Asher Society for Persecuted, Ostracized, and Banned Art. Ms. Stern goes on to share about the life and work of artist Fritz Asher, who survived World War II in hiding in Berlin, as well as many other artists who either stayed in Germany or fled, and how their art practice was impacted by the National Socialist art policy. We also discuss how the art historical term inner immigration has been defined and applied to these artists, and how their stories and work are being given deserved attention and a measure of historical justice through the many programs, exhibitions, and events created by the Fritz Asher Society. Rachel Stern, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Would you give an overview of your work and what led you to found the Fritz Asher Society? So I'm the, the director and, uh, of the Fritz Asher Society for Persecuted, Ostracized and Banned Art. And uh, what we do is we research and discuss, publish and exhibit artists uh, whose life and work were affected by the German Nazi regime between 1933 and 1945. Um, and um, so with this work, we are um, bringing to the public attention a group of artists who are not known to the general public. Uh, and we comm commemorate their lives and achievements and also strive to integrate them in into uh, the larger art historical story. And um, uh, the other very large uh, um, aspect of our work is that we, of course, by doing that, um, we by telling these individual stories, um, we um, tell about the Holocaust, what happened to these artists, not uh, many of them were killed. Um, some were able to survive in hiding or uh, or fleeing to other countries. Um, and so, by telling these stories, we 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 really um, uh, give people a very individual access to what happened during the Holocaust. Um, uh, yeah, so that's what we do. And Fritz Asher's story is so compelling. Could you give an overview uh, about him and his work and his experience during the war? Yes. Uh, so, so for me, um, my work started with uh, Fritz Asher, and um, I'm an art historian, educated. Uh, uh, 
raised and educated in Germany. And I um, saw Fritz Asher's work almost 30 years ago now um, and was uh, really touched by his landscapes that he created after 1945. Nobody had ever researched the name, uh, the artist. Uh, he was not known to anybody. And um, and um, I tried to um, research him. I tried to um, speak to museums to exhibit his work. And there was no interest uh, in Germany uh, at that time in the 90s. It, it was a very different time than today. And um, so I did a lot of research Um it helped me very much that Germany was reunited in 1989 um, because after a while, uh, uh, all the archives were organized and uh, digitized and so on. Um, and uh, I immigrated to the U.S. And um, in 2010, I restarted researching with, you know, all the archives digitized with, um, I spoke to museum partners who were now open to show the exhibition. And um, so I discovered so many things. I had done interviews with people who knew him, Fritz Ascher, and I found out uh, so much more about his life. Uh, Fritz Ascher had survived the Holocaust in hiding. Um, and uh, for three years, he was uh, hidden and wrote poetry, couldn't create this art. But before uh, the German Nazis came to power, he was um, really on uh, on his way to a very promising career. And uh, by uh, creating large figure um, compositions um, that you know, were based on the uh, on the uh, expressionist um, visual language, on uh, uh, symbolism a little bit. And uh, so he was making himself a name and was very much a child of his time then with very um, unusual takes on themes like the golem, like uh, crucifixion, which really belongs somehow to um, the iconography of of the time. And um, so for me, um, he was not allowed to create or exhibit art uh, during the Nazi years. So for all these uh, between 1933 and 1945, uh, there are not many works that he created. But in 45, when he came out of hiding, he um, exploded and uh, created, in my opinion, his most powerful work because he didn't care about the market anymore. He didn't care about um, his uh, success. He didn't care about how many people would see his work. He just created this work and uh, created his very, very unique language. And um, these works are very intense and very um, speak to you know, um, uh, directly to your emotions. And uh, many people have said he created a lot of landscape, uh, uh, trees, and a lot of people have said that they very much um, 
appear as if they're people. So, you know, there are all these um, aspects to his work that we discover now. And um, so it's really exciting, that journey, and as uh, which started as my own journey and then integrated more, brought in more and more uh, um, curators and art historians and specialists and, and also the public who saw uh, the exhibitions of his work and, um, you know, who responded to his art. So, you know, the, the way it's been seen now and understood now is getting more and more complex, which is really exciting to me. For the trees that you mentioned, I had seen where he certainly did uh, revisit over the years certain topics or certain paintings or worked over them or perhaps made similar compositions. And I wondered if you might speak to the the last painting, I believe, Trees in Hilly Landscape. And I just thought it was a really interesting, like, was it a 20-year gap between mm-hmm. uh, the, there was a comparison I'd seen between that last tree composition and one he'd done decades before and the differences. Yeah, it's actually a, a very interesting transformation because uh, the landscapes he created, uh, he was living very close to um the, in Berlin, uh, Berlin, always in Berlin, his whole life, uh, close to the Grunewald, which is the largest city forest in Berlin. And, um, so he would take really long walks there, um, hour long walks. And uh, his favorite times were in the early morning and the late afternoon when nobody was around really. Um, and so he created, trees uh many of the the depictions are about trees um but he also created these uh mostly sunsets these wide open landscapes uh uh that you could walk into and you know um and so in the beginning his trees were very much um uh Yes, some of them felt like two people, three people uh, communicating uh, to each other. But uh, when he created a forest, it was very much, uh, very often blocked to the viewer. You could not walk in there because there it was e- either too dense or there were um, parts of the trees were blocking your access to that forest and in that last last painting the last dated paint, uh, painting that he created uh 1968 um we see three three uh, trees uh that open up to a wide landscape and um uh to a sunny wide landscape and uh, you know uh I find I see so much optimism in in this and so much um yeah optimism and uh embrace of life and appreciation for life. Were there also recently discovered head studies or portraits on paper that he had done? I was curious if you would describe a bit about those and how they were found and and your takeaway from from those pieces. That's a very interesting, uh, a very current question, actually, um, because uh, we've previously 
thought that uh, Fritz Usher completely turned away from um, portraits after 1945. He did not have many contacts. We know there was just a very, very slow, a very, very small circle of people who were um, allowed to uh, come into his space and were welcomed into into his space. Uh, mainly children, actually. There, he had no um, no um, problems of connecting. Uh, quite the contrary, actually. So. You know, I always thought there is uh, quite some disappointment in the human race, in the human being after what he went through. Um, and um, then we find uh, I'm being made aware of a private collection um, uh, that uh, has a lot of portraits, ink drawings, um, uh, in fact, uh, that show a quick studies uh head studies and um that was a revelation because before we said always what i told you uh, just now you know that the trees begin to stand in but you know apparently he also did some portraits and um so they were clearly made out of memory not direct portraits um he must have had uh, was described to me as having a, um, a tremendous memory, a visual memory. So, um, and you know, so we are at this point just at the very, very beginning to look at these drawings and to uh, figure out how they fit in. Um, but one a aspect that I want to point to is that we also know he had a huge studio, a winter, gar a winter garden, where he would do his paintings uh, and very often would work through the nights. Um, in the winter, though, this space was not possible to heat. So he retreated to um, a, a different smaller room uh, that could be heated and did paperwork. So. So uh, most of these, uh, this oeuvre must have been done in the winter month, uh, which is another, you know, in interesting aspect. But we hope to, you know, do some further research and, uh, you know, integrate that new discovery into understanding him. And that's such a such an exciting thing about working on an artist who hasn't been worked on before. How would you describe this? To me, it seems like a very complex term of inner immigration and how you see that with Fritz Asher and then other artists. You, you've explored this topic a lot, and I'd just love if you could give an overview of it and the, the nuances of it and then just some examples from different artists. Yeah, I think it's you know it's a it's an art historic term in in many ways that has recently been been discussed and um, uh, needs some refinement because um, uh, you know Fritz Asher is described as having gone into inner immigration, which um, I don't agree with because he just wasn't able to work because he was forbidden to work. He could not buy material. He could not exhibit. He was um, prevented to do his artwork. Um, 
And uh, so he, instead of creating artwork, he wrote poetry. Um, but it's a very visual poetry. He's, uh, in a way, he is creating unpainted paintings. Um, and um, so, but there is, you know, in, in, very recent or very recently um inner immigration has been discovered as or uh, explored as um looking at artists who stayed in germany um and many many people stayed in germany because uh, they just couldn't leave um uh, we pretty much know what happened to Jews who couldn't leave. Um, but uh, there were also other people who, uh, and to communists and, and to, to many other groups that uh, were not liked by the Nazis. Um, but there were also artists who didn't agree with the regime, but couldn't leave or didn't want to leave the country. Um, so they are. Uh, um, uh, told, uh, you know, they they are understood of uh, as having gone into inner immigration, and in that context, what it is, what it really describes is that um, people found different ways of going around the or working with the Nazi politics, really, by either changing their work. Um, focusing on justice depicting landscapes uh, like Otto Dix did um, by, um, you know, some of them created secret work um, that they hid in their apartments or somewhere else, like uh, Jean Mammon also. She did not want to be part of the the regime. She, uh, you know, went out with a book cart, sold used books, trying to make a living. But she said, I don't want to be part, I don't want to become part of this machinery. Uh, so I cannot create officially art. Now she had um, collectors who had moved to the United States. So she was able to sell artwork by working with these, you know, um, collectors selling to, to these people through various channels. Um, but there were also people who, uh, for example, men, you know, everybody, every man in a, a certain in military age had to join the Nazis. There were some like Ullmann um, who are said to have really starved them down to the weight, uh, themselves down to the weight where they wouldn't be accepted. Uh, that weight was, I think, 50 pounds, which is really, um, you know, um, just survivor uh, weight and caused a lot of health problems for those who did that further on in their lives. So, you know, there were all kinds of different um, strategies of, of getting through these years, hoping that this would be, um, uh, would not take too long <laughs> to be, until it would be over. Leah Grundig also comes to mind and, and her very overt approach. 
Well, Leah Grundig is a very complicated case, really. She she was Jewish, got married to Hans uh, Hans Grundig, um, who was not Jewish, Jewish, and um, joined with him the Communist Party and was very active politically very active and uh, both really created um, uh, artwork that was politically very clear and uh, so uh, very outspoken very clear so both of them really um, had problems (laughs) really early on and um, ultimately Hans Grundig was in the concentration camp uh, uh, for a while. Leah Grundig was able to flee to Palestine. And um, in 1945, both were such such strong believers in um, the the German in the in the Eastern German country in in this uh, idea of the perfect communist regime that they that Hans Grundig uh, uh, convinced Lea Grundig to come back and uh, help build this new country. Little did they know that this was um, how strongly it was connected to, connected to, to Russia uh, and how restricted um, how how little the the Holocaust story would be worked about. A lot of Jews went into uh, the GDR hoping to build this uh, uh, utopia, and were then really trapped in the country when when the wall was built in uh, 1961. And both uh, Leah and Hans Gornig make make quite a career there, um, you know, trying to educate and trying to, um, so, but it was very political, uh, it was a tough political dance, not a dance, it was a fine line of, you know, um, if you become involved in teaching, in in if you take a job in in the academies like how much are you part really of that country that was created there and how much are you um um how much do you have to live the propaganda that developed there so so it was a very difficult situation there especially for lea grundig as as a jew um and uh yeah so there's this whole German, German, German aspect to, to, to it as well. And the Gründigs, as well as Mammon and several other artists, were included in a recent exhibition that you had introduced me to, um, Art for No One. Uh, would you kind of describe your thoughts on the importance of exhibitions like that and perhaps your thoughts on that exhibition? Yeah, there's... There, um, is a huge delay in in uh, really working through these um, uh, very important aspects of 
German history, German and his uh, and actually European history, um, and um, in a way, I do think that there is some benefit in it because there's this emotional distance that you, you can really uh, look at these um, these um, topics with more emotion than it was possible for the generations before before um and this um exhibition uh in frankfurt actually art for no no one uh dealt with um artists um who did stay in uh, in germany and created art um there is no jewish artist included in that uh, naturally because those who stayed were wanting uh, stayed in Germany were running and hiding and definitely not creating art uh, and most most of them were killed anyway so uh, it is all um, German artists and um, yeah, the Grundis are one one Nia Grundig is one uh, big uh, uh, exception um, but I mentioned Otto Dix uh, who's uh, included those are the artists who stayed and uh, the art is being looked at that they created uh, during that time, trying not to be become part of the Nazi propaganda machine, which was very um, was uh, for the Nazis culture was very very important because they they realized how how influential culture is within the society. Society. So they used the arts very early on and uh, and uh, uh, streamlined them and created the you know the the attacked the art and the artists that were not supposed to be part of uh, the the Nazi propaganda machine. So and and art was uh, for sure used as as propaganda as well. So um, yeah, in that way it was very very interesting uh, exhibition and um, many of these artists are also not very well known even though they uh, kept creating after 1945 but um, the art promoted in in Germany uh, was a very after 45 was a very different art so many of them really fell through the cracks like the Jewish artists who you know, um, were in exile or um, kid. Is there a, a particular artist that you see as not having received attention that particularly resonates with you that we haven't discussed yet? You know, that's a part of uh, creating the, the Fritz Asher Society that we um, um, that I've seen. I'm an art historian by training, so I believe in the in the really strongly believe in the uh, uh, power of art to to touch and transform people. And um, and on my journey uh, researching Fritz Asher and exhibiting him, um, I I keep discover, uh, discovering artists who I haven't heard of and who nobody else has heard of. And many of these artists even are in museum collections, uh, some of them even worldwide. But because of their 
uh, years in exile or, you know, uh, of them uh, creating art that was not the mainstream art at uh, in, in the post-war uh, years in Germany or Europe, they are not known. And so I feel, you know, there are so many people who I'm excited to, to really um, uh, introduce. And uh, not everyone can be introduced with an exhibition. You uh, for sure know how much work it is to, to uh, organize an exhibition. And it's a local event. But we developed over the past two years, three years, um, uh, Zoom events where we, uh, you know, discuss and uh, um uh, some of these artists and um and portray them so that gives you know introduces really a global audience to these artists so it's it's a um a constant evolving process that we should just keep checking back with the Fritz Asher society to see the next new artist that's the next new <laughs> quote unquote artist right <laughs> Of course, of course, and and I hope that uh, slowly but surely they will really be integrated in into larger art history, and that they um, will be more and more integrated in in um, exhibitions and so on. And and many of the exhibitions that are happening in Germany now they um, do have a mix of very well known artists, and uh, you know artists that haven't been know, uh, heard of at all. And that's what we also uh, tried to do with our exhibition, Identity, Art and Migration, that we opened. Uh, it's an online exhibition, so it's uh, globally accessible. Um, and it really uh, looks at um, seven artists who uh, and looks at their lives during um, and their experiences and their artwork um, during the before, during, and after the Nazi time, so Nazi regime. So um, you know, we inter we we uh, Fritz Asche is part of it, even though he did not migrate. He went into immigration, so um, uh, um, that's and Germany definitely. Um, Changed. It was definitely uh, uh, quite a journey to, you know, become in some way part of that uh, society again. Um, and the other six artists uh, immigrated at some point in their lives to the U.S. So we look at U.S. Uh, immigration, um, but we also look at uh, different artists uh, who came who created very different art to begin with, and we look at what happened to their art. Um, but we also look at um, different genders. We look at different ages or different uh, circumstances because every uh, every life story is and every migration story is so wildly different so that we wanted to... Um, the selection cannot be with seven people, cannot be representative, but it can just give a hint how diverse the experiences were. And, and also um, 
I think by telling these migration and immigration stories, I um, want to want people to I want to take people on that journey and at least a little bit, you know, slip into their shoes, what it means to uh, for uh, for a migrant to come into culture that they didn't pick. Uh, you know, it was just survival, really pure survival, leaving leaving behind their home, everything they knew before, and uh, and the culture that they uh, lived in before, and being thrown into a totally new culture, having to figure out, you know, how to integrate, how to deal with that, how, you know, on a personal uh, level, and uh, whether there's a communal aspect to that as well for them and um i think um and that those are very very i hope to to create some some empathy by going on that journey with these artists um to create some empathy in people uh uh you know dealing with today's migration um because you know again the whole uh, the the us but but all western countries really are uh hosts again of you know as of an immigra- a migration wave that's unprecedented has never happened in you know known history before and um so for us, you know, as hosts to uh, realize what it means to the individual, really, you know, to take that step and how desperate they have to be to make that step. Um, and in, in you know, possibly some somehow, yes, greet them with empathy, but also step in and figure out how you every single person can help. Um, so I find that very, you know, I'm I'm very passionate about uh, about that, and and hope that to to make a little bit of a um, have a little bit of an impact there. I also thought it was very impactful the choice that you'd made uh, a while back with making one of the Fritz Asher exhibitions, I believe, at the Felix Nussbaum Museum. Yes, yes, actually. Felix Nussbaum was um, killed in Auschwitz. Um, he was able to to flee to uh, Holland and Belgium and uh, was able to create art there. So he um, some of the iconic uh, artworks about the Holocaust, with the star of yellow star of David and and things like that, are made by him. And um, and uh, so yes, this uh, museum that was created in Osnabrück uh, in his honor to commemorate his his work and his life. Um, was actually the the muse- museum and especially the director Inge Jena, uh, the founding director was uh, the one who the first one who really supported my work and wanted to bring the exhibition uh, uh, to life and uh, was very very instrumental in doing that. Even though she 
did not uh, um, live to see the opening, but uh, the museum has continued with Anne Schwetter, the uh, curator there, um, uh, has continued to support the process of creating that exhibition. And I'm really thankful for that because for the time, uh, the exhibition opened in 2016 and was shown in uh, six museums in Germany, came to uh, to the U.S., to the Gray Art Gallery uh, in of NYU here in New York in 2019. So they were, even at that time, they were really one of the few museums who openly and championed and, and supported, you know, exhibitions of artists like Fritz Ascher, which I'm very thankful for. Yeah. Yeah. And it has some of um, Nussbaum's wife's work, Felka Platic, too, I believe, right? Yes, 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 they do, too. Yes, so they did very, very important work uh, for all these years. But I think the there is much more openness towards towards uh, artists who were who were persecuted by the by the German Nazis. Right now, there is a big focus on the post-war years um, uh, in in terms of scholarship, in terms of exhibitions. Um, uh, there is a focus on you know. Uh, lots of exhibitions and scholarship is looking at you know what did artists do during this time wherever they were whether they were in germany or whether they fled um but also a big focus uh, uh now is uh to look what happened after 45 in germany like what was the um what was the art art politics and you know and again, also at at the role of the allies, and um, we have to say that uh, the American, the Americans, very much, you know, there was a big focus of the allies right after forty five to um, show art of artists who were suppressed to make sure that artists had art materials so they could create again. Um, but that didn't hold for too long because the you know then suddenly this uh, uh, the split between Eastern and Western Germany um, was becoming more and more clear that this was happening and then yeah basically the Cold War was the main uh, uh, focus then and and really took away the focus from dealing with post-war Germany. Well, for all the work that you are doing, uh, bringing these artists to light, do you see it as facilitating historical justice for the artists and their work? Oh, definitely. Uh, definitely. Uh, historical justice and, and also um, memorizing these these artists and, um, you know, putting them into, into their context. Yes, for sure. I mean, it has these two aspects you know um the commemoration and um justice and at the same time the the education aspect you know to put yourself into the shoes and hopefully you know um come out a different person a little bit <laughs> <laughs> 
left with some thoughts, you know, about about yes. your daily life. I hope. Is there a definition of justice that you've thought of over the course of your career? Has it evolved? That's a big question. I I don't think I can answer that so spontaneously. But I I do think, you know, the desire today to tell stories of minorities, to tell stories that haven't been told. Because history, of course, is always um, the main storyline, right? It's it's the the story of the majorities, and uh, but it becomes so much more complex if you tell and integrate these untold stories. Um, and I think that has a lot of lot to do with with justice. <laughs> yeah, with historical justice, you know. Yeah. What is the another big topic? What is the legacy that you would be hoping that you're creating with all of this beautiful work that you're doing? Just those two things really to to tell untold stories to you know bring to life artists and and their work and show their importance um within the larger larger cultural context and sensitize people is there anything else that you'd like to share that i haven't asked you about i want to definitely thank you for you know our conversation and giving me the opportunity to to talk about our work and to talk about the power of art to have this unique angle to initiate discussion and dialogue and thoughts and hopefully you know for people for us all to to you know um help create a better world there will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the fritz asher society for persecuted ostracized and banned art if you enjoyed this podcast you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast, email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com, or leave a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash Warfare of Art and Law. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.